This episode is brought to you by City on Fire by number one international bestseller Don Winslow. Stephen King has called Don Winslow one of America's greatest storytellers and Christian White has said that City on Fire is a masterpiece, wonderfully crafted, beautifully written and a propulsive, authentic page turner. It's already receiving rave reviews all around the world with Publisher Weekly, Library Journal, Kirkus and Booklist already giving it starred reviews, saying epic, stunning and brilliant. City on Fire will be released in Australia on the 4th of May, so pre-order your copy now. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 35,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been living with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm uh. feeling sick. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to Words and Nerds podcast. I'm Alison Tate and I'm staging a takeover from regular host Danny V for the next in my ad hoc series about creativity. I am the author of epic middle grade adventure series, The Mapmaker Chronicles, The Adaban Cipher, and my latest, The Maven and Reeve Mystery Series. And today I'm going to be talking about creativity and parenting with the wonderful Kerry Sackville, whose latest book, The Life-Changing Magic of a Little Bit of Mess, is all about embracing domestic imperfection and discovering the joy of letting your standards slip. Kerry is an Australian author and columnist who lives in Sydney with her kids and a cat. She is the author of four books, Out There 2018, When My Husband Does the Dishes 2012 and The Little Book of Anxiety also 2012 along with her latest. Kerry and I have known each other for quite some time. We met via Twitter, which is the greatest meeting place of the world, I think, um, for the meeting of minds. And we have been in touch for a long time. So I've watched her career um, grow uh, over many, many years. And I also know that she, like me, has been dealing with kids and family and all of the other joys that come with that stuff along the way. So today, we're just going to have a bit of a talk about the impact of that, the ways in which parenting can be both inspiring and also less than inspiring um <laughs> go less than there. inspiring is right <laughs> and but, you, you failed to mention al that you've seen me with my pants off oh i did fail well you know it's not something i like to throw into the you know up front of every sort of conversation i have we usually get round to it at some point though isn't yeah. it maybe you'd yeah. like to explain to people how that happened Oh, look, we were at a blogging conference many, many years ago, you and, and Valerie Koo and me, and we went out a bit hard at the party on the final night, and I failed we, to remember. We went out we were, a bit hard? Okay, so let's say I went out a bit hard on the party the final night. We were away from home. I was away from my three kids. 
there was a lot of alcohol on tap and I forgot that we were presenting a panel the next morning. And so I do recall you and Val taking me back to my hotel room and force feeding me like two litres of water, refusing to let me go to sleep until I'd drunk all the water and then like taking my pants off and leaving me. And actually I felt quite good the next morning after another two litres of coffee. After the waterboard torture of the night before. Well, I, I think this is a perfect lead-in, actually, to to my first question for you because um, I I think it could be said that you know with your columns and your books and and the various things that you do, I think it could be said that you mine your life, your own life, for material. Would you agree with that? Yes, and the reason is I'm just not very imaginative. You know, <laughs> I'm so in awe of people like you who write novels. I've tried to write novels, and I just get stuck in what's really happened. I just am not great at making things up. And I suppose the good thing about my life is that stuff tends to happen to me and it's, it's never anything major. It's just kind of little tiny things that I can mine for, I guess, my own and other people's amusement. So I'll give you an example. I was doing a Zoom interview uh, early last year, I think it was, maybe late the previous year, And in the middle of the interview, I looked into the camera and noticed that my cupboard doors were open in the background. I was in my, it was in my bedroom. It was during, during lockdown and my bras were on display. And it was like. I remember this. Your bras were world famous there. Your bras nearly broke the internet at one stage. They did. They they were hanging on hooks, which apparently is unusual. I didn't realise that at the time. It is unusual. And, you know, I thought in that moment, you know, do I allow myself to be humiliated and have this terrible internet fail or do I own it and write about it and turn it into something funny? And that's what I decided to do. So it's just taking little things that have happened to me that are generally kind of relatable um, and I guess turning them into column and book material. That, that instant actually made it into my latest book. <laughs> um, yeah, Bragate. Um, so okay. I do. I'm, I, I mind my life, but I'm lucky that things, uh, whether or not things happen to me, actually, I, I'm lucky that I notice the little things. I that's, think that's what you need. That's actually what I was going to say to you because you yeah. said, you know, things happen to me, but I actually think it's more of a gift and probably an art and also experience and a skill for recognising those moments and then being able to turn them into something that, as you say, is universal because I think that's the key and that is an art form like it's people think that writing a column about something funny that happened to them that day is would be easy but it's actually about making what happened to you relatable and accessible to other people so that they go oh my god I could see myself doing that do you agree with that yes no completely and I, I you know I think good writing is writing that actually looks easy and you know because I was I was on the dating scene for about eight and a half years and it's something that would happen all the time on the dating scene people would say to me men obviously would say oh yeah you know I I like people who men who'd read things I'd written and be like oh yeah I you know I I would write too if I had the time you know Mm. as if writing is just something that that you know you do because you've got nothing else to do but it is a skill there's a skill in in turning something that is quite innocuous or minor into something bigger and my kids always say to me um like they'll read something I I wrote and my son will say that's not exactly how it happened mum but it's not that I'm making it up I mean there's obviously poetic license in how you describe something that's happened but it's how I actually see it yeah 
So when something happens, for example, okay, so here's another one. I think my last column was about, you know, I just had COVID. My daughter had COVID, my 14-year-old. Um, and then I knew I was going to get it because she was quite sick and I had to tend to her. And then while we were in ISO from COVID, our electricity went down. Oh, yes. Um, so I remember that, reading this story. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, in a sense, that's the whole story, right? We had COVID, the electricity went down. Um, it, was a, it was a shitty week. But the way I saw it, and in fact, what happened, but it's a particular way of seeing it, is there was a possum who chewed through our electricity cables. The possum died. <laughs> you know, the poor possum was, was sacrificed. Um, and, you know, then, then our electricity was out for 40 hours and they had to come and repair it. And we were sitting, you know, us, you know the two of us were sitting kind of huddled in the dark, you know, and this possum had kind of taken us, us both down. And it's just another way of describing what happened. You could describe it as, well, the electricity went down, we had COVID, it was really awful, or a tale about a possum um, and, um, you know, being isolated and, and powerless in, in the dark. And so it's a way of... I guess, conceptualising fairly ordinary experiences and being able to turn them into something more. And that's, that's my skill. That's what I do. And it's really lucky because I literally have no other skills. I can't do anything else. <laughs> like, if I couldn't do this, I'd be absolutely lost. It's interesting, though, there, because you did, you used exactly the right word there. You described it as I could tell you that the electricity went down and we were in the dark for two days, or I could, you know, tell you a tale about the yes. possum and yes. it's the storytelling aspect of that which I think is is what makes the difference and weaving a story out of the one thing that happened to you that day that was you know vaguely you know out of the ordinary or interesting or whatever um, and that is a real skill set in itself and I think that a lot of people don't recognize that like I get into trouble a lot because you know I live with a builder and he's Dutch and he's quite literal and you know I will be We'll, I'll be telling a story about something that's happened to us and it will be the world's most, you know, whatever. And I'm like turning it into a massively dramatic tale with my arms waving and, and he'll be like, but that's not exactly what happened. I'm like, yeah, but this is as much detail as people need. Like he will want to give you the joists. Like he will want to build you the house from the foundations with every nut, bolt and whatever. Whereas I'm just going to paint you a picture and it's just going to have the highlights and they're going to be funny and that's going to be the whole thing. And I think Knowing what to leave out is as important as knowing what to put in. Would oh, you agree? God, yeah. God, yeah. And, you know, what I always tell people who read my books, read my columns and ask about my actual life is that every single thing I write is true and it happened, but it's a highly curated version of the truth. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I, I've got three kids and... Um, one of them is kind of a bit of a storyteller like me and the other two are much more literal and they'll say the same thing. You know, like I'll be telling a story and in, in the story, you know, oh, my God, I, like I, I, someone I fell over. And, and, in fact, I might have stumbled. Yeah. But falling over makes it a little bit more dramatic or I'll see a particular angle of the story and they'll see something quite different. But that's, that's life, that's storytelling and, and something that, you know, I learned many years ago, I think, I think at university about linguistics and how we tell stories is that there's, even in a very, very basic sense, there's so many ways to tell a story and people learn that in, I, I didn't never study journalism, but people learn that in journalism. So, for example, you walk into a room and you see somebody pick up a gun and shoot somebody else. How do you describe that? Is it, well, um, the lady shot the man? Is it the man was hit by a bullet? Is it the gun went off? Yeah. You know, there's so many different ways. And I see the world in a very particular way and I, I write it as I see it. Um, but, of course, my version of events is is 
really highly curated and, and would not be the same version as other people and that's what makes storytelling. But it's literally how I see it and um, I, I think it would be very hard if you are a literal person to be able to do that because, you know, it, it's just not as... I'm just lucky that I see the world in in um, kind of quite a dramatic way. I was always dramatic. Yes, you were um, always dramatic. Yeah, it's true. Dramatic. Is this where you pull out the Nicole Kidman story or something fun well, like that? Yeah, you know, I, I'm just going to, before you do that, I'm just going to get you to move your necklace because that crinkling noise yeah. that you can hear people is just Carrie's microphone hitting her necklace. It's a very oh. nice necklace. She's it is. I'm, gonna, I'm glad you said that. Well, yes, you know, thank so you. it is lovely. I'm just going to, oh, there you go. I'll take it off. Here we go. Here we go. See, she's Sorry, stripping everyone. for you. Now she's stripping for you as well as for me. So that's good. <laughs> it's just obviously what I do <laughs> in your presence, you Al. I can't help myself. It's absolutely um, what you do. So, yeah, when I was younger, I wanted to be an actor, um, and as so many people do. And I went for a few auditions and I actually came runner-up for a little film called BMX Bandits. <laughs> Um, which became Nicole Kidman's breakout film, and then she went on to be divorced from Tom Cruise. So if it wasn't for her, if it was, I would probably be divorced from Tom Cruise right now. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be married to um, oh, what's his name? What's her husband? The East, Keith Urban. Yeah, Keith. Nah, doesn't do it. Not me. for you. Nah, don't like country music. Would you have no, married Tom be. Cruise though? Let's yes. Ask. yes, 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 yes. Okay, definitely. all right, good. Definitely. I'm glad we cleared that up. That's great. Yes. Um, <laughs> how many columns and articles are you writing each week? Like how many, how much sort of like, how many responses? Because you're often responding to the headlines of the day, aren't you? So yeah. there's a lot of pressure involved in that. There's a lot of pressure. I, I actually, um, at one point I was writing two or three a week yeah. and I, it was a lot. Yeah. And, you start to kind of get burned out. Um, and then, God, in 2020 with COVID, I wrote almost nothing mm. for that year. It was a really, really bad year. It was a bad year for the media. It was a bad year for me personally. And then it started to pick up again last year. So it's usually about one a week at the moment, but I've you know, been writing books as well. So I've got this one coming out um, now. And then I've got another one that I'm working on that I'm due to finish, oh, my God, in June. Um, <laughs> Oops. Sorry. Oh, deadlines, deadlines. Um, and, yeah, there are times when I often, often these days will think, okay, that's my last column. I'm never writing anything again. Like, that was my last idea. <laughs> have nothing else. I've completely kind of exhausted every idea or angle I possibly have. And then, you know, a couple of days later I'll read something or something will happen. I'll be like, oh, there you go. Like, I can write about that. It's, it's one of those things where it's very hard to force. It just kind of comes to you or it doesn't. And the greatest gift I can ever have, which happens um, reasonably regularly these days, is that an editor will write to me and say, oh, Kerry, have you seen such and such? Do you have an angle on that? And that's like, thank you. Oh, wow. Because okay. So that's that's happening to you now, but that hasn't been necessarily the case all along. It's, it's been happening now for probably the a few years, yeah. but it certainly wasn't for most of my career. And that's when, when an editor actually offers you an idea, it's just such a relief it is and it's, it's not the writing that's hard it's the ideas it that are hard. and it's interesting isn't it because I think people I remember when I was freelancing people used was one thing that people used to always ask me about was you know do the editors you know come up with the ideas and then ask you to write them I'm like no you know like I'm coming up with 10 ideas and you know I'm writing three of them you know for yeah. different for different people and I think that that sort of learning the art of pitching the idea is um, something that i think a lot of people who kind of go into writing don't necessarily 
uh, recognise is a skill that they even need to begin with. But oh, pitching gosh, the idea yeah. is is almost more important, or like being able to pitch the idea is almost more important than, you know, being able to write it because, you know, I'd, once it's written, it can be edited. But if you don't get the idea right and the angle right in the first place, um, you won't sell the story. Yeah, 100%. Mm. And for, you know, for my columns in Sunday Life magazine, that's always, you know, something that I've thought of and, and um, pitched. And Well, I'm at the point now I'm very, very lucky where I don't really have to pitch to them so much anymore. Yeah. I'll say this is what I want to write about. For the op-eds, no, I pitched for years and years and I still pitch yeah. for my op-eds, but they know me well, they know my writing style and they might see something and, um, and just say, oh, Kerry, do you, do you have thoughts about this? Because yeah. they know I'll be able to come up with something yeah. and, and I can write fairly quickly I can turn things over really quickly but that's you know I've been writing now for solidly for what oh, oh god solidly for about 13 years yeah. with you know with certain publications yeah and um you know you build up a relationship with the editor and it doesn't happen all the time but when it does happen it's it's just it's a joy it's, no that's it's right <laughs> and that trust as well and as an editor as someone who's worked as an editor I know um the ability to be able to give something to give an idea to someone knowing that you need it done quickly and then understanding that what you're going to get back from them is going to be something that you can use yeah is amazing as well like it's it's yeah. a trust both ways thing and i think that it's um it's something that i think all freelance writers should be looking at trying to um to nurture because uh it is you know if an editor knows they can rely on you to to give them the right thing for their publication consistently, then you, you're worth gold. You, you know, you're worth, you're very yeah. valuable to them, and I think that that's um, that's something to remember as well. So, having said that, we mine your life, and that you that you're kind of writing about various things all the time. Are there areas you won't write about, or is is everything fair game? Oh God, yeah. Oh no, no, no. Everything is not fair game. I'm actually incredibly careful about what I write, and to me, that's. I think that the most important skill to have when you're a nonfiction personal writer mm. is being able to give the illusion of giving everything away whilst actually keeping most things back for yourself. Yeah. Um, it looks like I give everything away, but I am, as I said earlier, I'm, it's incredibly curated and there is a huge amount that's completely off limits. And something that I, you know, I've never had it, tested but I would challenge anybody who's read everything I've ever written to be able to pick my kids out of a lineup mm. or yes. pick my ex-husband out of a lineup yeah um I you know you, you'd probably know this from conversations that we've had in general on Twitter and Facebook and so on I have a real issue with people who write a lot about their kids and post photos of their kids and talk about their kids' personal lives <clears throat> online. Yeah. Um, I am very protective of my kids' privacy. And you can still manage to write about parenting without actually uh, exploiting your children or, yep. um, or compromising their privacy. So, so my first book was, was called When My Husband Does the Dishes, a memoir of marriage and motherhood. And I wrote all about married life and I wrote all about parenting and I never mentioned my kids' names. I never mentioned my ex-husband's name. I think I referred to him as the architect. So the only thing people knew about him was he was an architect. And I could write all about the foibles of 
um, kids in general, of, you know, the kind of challenges we all face as parents, the ridiculous things my kids said, but I never talked about their personal struggles. You know, all three of my kids obviously have different personalities, have had different paths through lives, have had different struggles, and I never talk about that because that's their stories to tell. Yeah. My, my right, I think, is to talk about being a parent but not to talk about my kids' personal journeys. And I feel really strongly about that. I know a lot of people feel very differently and I respect that, but that's not my style to do. So I don't post any photos of my kids online ever, not even on my personal Facebook page. Um, in all my, you know, I wrote a book about dating in midlife. So my, my book before this one was out there, A Survival Guide to Dating in Midlife. And I wrote all about the challenges of, of being someone um, on the midlife dating scene. And I wrote all about different, different experiences that I've had. But I can tell you that not one man I ever dated picked himself out of that book because That's I would a gift. Tweak, <laughs> yes, I would just, I, I would talk about the experience. So, you know, the experience of going out with someone who turns out to be 10 years older than you think they're going to be, yeah. um, than their photos looked or somebody who talks incessantly about themselves or the kind of guys who, you know, were so broken from their relationships, they basically use you as a therapist. And all you need to do is tweak little details about them and you can convey the truth of the experience without actually compromising their privacy. So it's, it's, it's really important to me to, to do that. Um, okay. And for people to feel safe being in relationships with me, knowing I'm not going to go and mind your life. Yes, and that, that's the thing too, isn't it? Like you, I mean, it's like being an author of any kind. You, you want people who you know and love to, to know that they're not going to end up in your books in any sort of way, shape or recognisable um, fashion. And I can honestly say that, I mean, when I used to write for women's magazines and things like that, I used to write about, you know, my, my sisters or whatever occasionally, but always with their knowledge and, and you know, never anything that was, you know, too, too private or whatever. Like you talk about your life a bit. And I remember I wrote one particular story about renovating with my then partner, now husband, which was you know, hilarious, um, which I told him about before I put it out there because for the simple fact that anyone who knew him was going to recognise him straight away from the fact that we had to go through 50 shades of white paint to find the right white paint. <laughs> you know, he was that kind of, he's that kind of builder. But, um, yeah, I think it's important that people, tr you know, you know that, the, that they trust that their, their private lives are not going to be, you know, laid out in a book or laid out on, on, on yeah. the, you know, on the internet somewhere. So we, we've talked about the fact that, you know, you've, you've written a book about motherhood. There's been, you know, you do actually talk about parenting within your, um, within your articles and things like that sometimes without, you know, really sort of going into too much about your kids' lives. So in what ways do you think that parenting has given you inspiration and in what ways do you think it has hampered you creatively? Wow. So in a very, very real sense, becoming a parent um, triggered my writing career. So mm -hmm. when I had my first child, so my son is now 22 and I'd been working completely different field. I trained as a social worker. Um, I worked in human resources up until my son was born. Um, I always used to love writing. I wrote as a kid, you know, I, I um, studied um, literature at uni and linguistics at uni. But um, what had happened is I'd started a BA uh, when I left school and then I transferred to social work and I did a social work degree. And I had thought that when I had my first child, I would be happy staying home with him for a couple of years. I really wanted to be a stay-at-home mum for a while. And when he was five months old, I went back to uni mm. and finished my degree in English and linguistics. Um, I, I just got bored. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, yeah. I needed stimulation. Yeah. And I love that. I loved going back to uni as a mature age student. 
it was just the best thing I ever did. And, and then when I had my second child, so two years later, so the first two or two years apart, shortly after she was born, I started just sending articles out here, there and everywhere. And my first ever piece was called Sleep is the New Sex. <laughs> And it was about how mothers crave sleep like we used to crave sex. Yeah. And it was all about, you know, you compare notes on how much sleep you've had. You know, oh, I was up and down all night and oh, it was really, really good and satisfying. So, you know, the way you used to talk about sex. And that's, that's actually how my career got started. So I started just sending things out to, um, there, there was at the time on the back of the Sydney Morning Herald, there was a section called Heckler, yeah. which was open to the public. And I started sending hecklers out and I had... They just kept taking my pieces and I think I had about 20 pieces in Heckler. At the time, it was like the most that anybody had ever had any individual writer. So that was amazing. And then I got some other work. Um, I started writing for parenting magazines and, and I wrote for, for um, a community paper. And then I had my third child um, and um, I've, I've written about this. My, my sister, my only sibling, died when I was 38 weeks pregnant yeah. and after my baby was born, I just had complete writer's block. I honestly thought I'd never write again. And I had 18 months of doing absolutely nothing. And then I heard about Twitter and I joined Twitter um, and started tweeting about ridiculous things about really about parenthood, just tweeting yeah. about the silly things that happened during the day. And that's what restarted my career. I, I, um, people started asking if I had a blog and I started blogging and then I was noticed by Mama Mia and I started writing for Mia and then I started building up my portfolio again and I started writing then for, um, you know, bigger and bigger publications. And I still remember the day that the then editor of Sunday Life um, called me and said, would you like to be one of our columnists? You know, you'd have to come in and have your photo taken and it's all a bit of a palaver and, and it was just like... That's what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Um, I'd always wanted to do that. Oh, I wrote, wrote, wrote books as well. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, and I wrote, wrote a couple of books yeah. in there as well. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a couple of books in there as well. Um, I was actually very lucky. You and I have discussed this before, but I was incredibly lucky. I was blogging and um, I'd started uh, writing a book, which turned out to be um, the first book when my husband does the dishes. And a certain person <laughs> had mentioned <laughs> to their agent that I was writing a book. Who would that be? Who could that Alison? possibly be? I have no Who idea. Who could that possibly Who be? Who was that person? I, I mean, I literally owe my, my writing career to you because you told oh, I don't Hippa, think so. <laughs> who is my agent, that I was writing a book and she contacted me and asked if I would like her to represent me. And, I mean, you know how, of course you know I'm saying to you, but in general, I mean, it is so hard to get an agent, a literary yeah. agent, and one fell in my lap thanks to a very, very generous female writer um, you've always been very generous that way. And, and I had an agent. And then when I wrote my book, she, she pitched it and I ended and you up, were off. I was off. So, so while yeah. you were doing all that stuff, like you're writing columns, you've got, you're writing books, you've got young kids, you know, mm. there's a lot going on there um, that, you know, did you find, did you ever have a time? And I think this is something I get asked a lot because, you know, obviously I had um, young children when I was sort of writing, started writing my novels as well as freelance writing as well as doing everything else. And a lot of people just said to me, I haven't got time for this. I'm going to do it when the kids are older or, you know, yeah. I, I don't know how you fit it in. I can't possibly do that, et cetera, et cetera. Was there ever a time when you thought this is too hard? I'm going to go back no. and do this when they're older? No. And the reason I didn't is because, 
I genuinely love writing. Mm. Like I have to write. Mm. I've written my whole life. When I was in jobs that did not require writing, I would do all the writing for, you know, the company. So I'd be the one who'd be writing their manuals or writing their publicity documents, whatever. And when I didn't have anything to write, I'd write diaries. I mean, Mm. endless diaries. My whole life I've written diaries since I was tiny, tiny. I have to write. And if I'm out somewhere at a coffee shop by myself and I've forgotten to bring a pen and paper, I'm the one going and buying, you know, buying endless notebooks. I have to write. Um, writing is a joy for me. It's not a joy every minute of the day. When you have a book contract I've discovered, because my first three books I wrote and then sold them as completed manuscripts, Yeah, this book and the one I'm writing currently, I pitched as ideas and have deadlines. That's a very different beast. We yeah, can talk about yeah. that later. But that's, yeah, yeah. when you're writing to a deadline, it's very, very stressful. Yeah. But for the others, you know, for, for most of my career, I was just writing I would write myself and then sell it. So I'd write a column and then sell it, or yeah. I'd write a book and then sell it. And I loved it. And, but, you know, I, I read so much about how other people write. And I think, I don't know if it's luck or if it's something that I just, I only ever had this option. And so it's something I'm very good at doing. I wrote when I had a few minutes. Yeah. So I am not someone who needs to sit down and have like, like I know that writers who need a five-hour stretch. Yeah. You know, they need to have complete quiet. Yeah. I would literally sit at my table. The kids were busy doing something and I'd, I'd sit at the kitchen table. In the middle of it office, all. Yeah. In the middle of it all. Yeah. And write for 20 minutes um, and then pick it up later. And, and you know, I don't write novels. I, I suspect that would be harder with novels. Yeah. Um, because I write nonfiction, I find it's much easier to, to kind of pick it up and come back to it because you don't have to immerse yourself in an imaginary world. You just have to get back into your voice. Um, but I also became very good at writing in my head. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is that I get an idea for a column and I literally will have the entire thing in my head yep. from start to finish and then I just have to sit down and, yep. and write it. Yep. So I, I could be, you know, cleaning up or doing something with the kids or taking them out and I get the whole idea and often I would just literally dictate it into my phone, the key yep. points. Yep. Um, or I'd hold it there and come and, and write it down. Yep. So I think as a mother, if you can't do that, I think it would be incredibly hard. Yeah. But I do think it's a skill that you can develop. Develop, yeah, I it's agree. It's kind of like when you have your first kid, right? My first kid, I was very routine and he had to nap between 12 and 2 and he was, you know, down in bed by 6 or whatever. Then you have your second and they just have to come along with you with your first every yep. go. And so the second kid just becomes better at sleeping on the run and, yeah. and fitting in and they, they don't need that schedule. And I think it's the same with, with writing as a parent. You just, if you train yourself to just have those 15 minutes here and there, you actually can be quite productive. I think oh. it must be very limiting to have to have, you know, a long period of time. Yeah. But your kids are older now. Um, so yeah. do you find you're writing more with the sort of, you know, extra time, and I say that, you know, with, with quote marks around it, or does it go into other things? Look, the most time I had was in 2020 when I lost most of my media work in, in that year yeah. because, you know, when COVID kind of really destroyed the media for a while, I had all the time in the world and I wrote nothing. Yeah. Like I wrote yeah. nothing. I actually think that time has no relationship to productivity productivity at all I think for me and I think for a lot of people um the busier I am the more energized I feel and the more I produce 
I think when you've got a whole day, there was a, there was a great um, episode, I don't know if you saw it, of Roseanne. I think it might have been one of the last ever episodes where she wanted to, back in the day, Roseanne wanted to be a writer and it was her birthday and her entire family left her on her birthday and gave her this gift of, here, you can write today. This one, um, this one and day. She, and she wandered around her house the whole time going, oh, I can write, I can write. Did absolutely nothing. Yeah. When the family came home, she found, got an idea and quickly jotted it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is something about having the chaos of people around and things happening and running from place to place and, and doing other things that generates um, ideas. And um, I've always found that when I have a lot of time, I'm, I, I just around i've also found strangely because i think people think that once your kids get older it's going to be easier you're going to have more time you're going to have more space i've actually found it more difficult in some ways as my kids have got older because when they were younger it was they took up a lot of physical energy like Mm. a lot of you know there was a lot of tiredness and there was a lot of um all that sort of stuff but there was always that notion that like once you put them to bed for their two hours sleep or whatever it was they were just there they were gone and you knew where they were and it was all fine and dandy and i found as they've got older that in actual fact they take up a lot more of my the creativity is in some ways more difficult because they're not taking up as much of my physical time but they're taking up a lot more of my of my sort of mental headspace you oh do you find that as well oh my god yeah like having young kids is just physically hard work you get Mm. physically exhausted Mm. having older kids is emotionally exhausting Mm. you know because they've all got different issues and if you know if you're lucky and you're close to your kids you know, they talk to you. And the, the greatest challenge for me of parenting is not taking on my kids' um, pain. And kids mm. have pain. Mm. And especially, I mean, the last couple of years with COVID. Mm. You know, and teenagers. Is, oh. oh, God. So <laughs> my, you know, my son and daughter, my two elder kids who were both at uni, were home for two years. Um, and I'm not the only one saying this. I mean, everybody went yeah. through this, but yeah. it was the most challenging time I've ever gone through with them. Mm. Um, my son at least had had two years of uni. Yeah. And so when he was at home, at least he'd had some uni experience. My daughter went straight from year 12 to she had six days of her course and then was home for two years. And I was watching my kids struggle every single day yeah. with you know, their lives just reduced to sitting at a computer. Plus I was dealing with my 14-year-old. Well, she's now 14, so she wasn't. She was 12 and 13, doing online schooling for huge chunks of time yeah. and just managing that, trying to get her to at least do some school. Anything. Like and find <laughs> she and her friends were, you know, playing games online. Of course they were. And, you know, I'd walk past her room and I'd hear, hear you know, some like a teacher's voice going, you know, unmute yourself, unmute yourself. And it was just the most surreal time. And the the emotional and, and psychological heaviness in my house yeah. was so difficult. And that's why I have to say writing a comedic book was amazing because I got to sit and just make up jokes and laugh. And I kept I kept using my kids last year as my beta readers because they were all stuck at home and they didn't want to be my beta readers. Like they were very clear that yeah. they had no interest in being my beta readers, but they were trapped. And so in the midst of all this heaviness, I would just throw these ridiculous jokes about cleaning and housework and mess at them. And, and um, yeah, sometimes they'd say things like, you know, mum, we're not your target audience. But, <laughs> or like maybe old people will find this funny. Like, Great. But then sometimes I would make them laugh, like against their will. And it was 
it was so great for all of us. Yeah. And there was one time when I wrote something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I wrote something that was actually really quite funny. And my son, I remember he was sitting there doing his uni work and he was like, that's actually funny, mum. And he looked as surprised as if I had literally grown a third leg. Like he could not have been more surprised that it was that you'd just, written something funny. Yeah. Oh my God. Mum wrote something funny. And it was just a bit of levity in an incredibly dark time. I have um, to say though, like I, I, like I know that you're saying that, that it was a re- release for you, but I can't imagine, um, you know, I feel like I'd struggle to write funny, you know, particularly, you know, like, well, some days, but also particularly that period of time. Like, did you find it difficult? To, is there a knack to, okay, I'm not feeling great, but I'm going to sit down and write something funny now? Yes. Yes, there actually is. And for the first couple of months, I really struggled. And, and then it's, it's very hard to, I imagine it's what you would go through with your novels where you're trying to create this world in your head and then you finally get it yes. and you're able to enter it. Yes. I don't have that because I don't write fiction, but it was almost like a portal in my brain mm. that I could enter yep. and, and then it would just start to flow. Like yep. the, the, and, and I had to get myself in there. So I started to read, like I stopped reading the news, yeah. um, the bad stories. I stopped reading anything serious because I tend to read a lot of serious nonfiction. I'm really into, into nonfiction. Um, and I started reading comedic nonfiction and I started doing things like looking, that sounds ridiculous, looking at blooper reels. I love blooper reels. And I would look at blooper reels um, on YouTube and I would go on to, I'm not on TikTok, but I'd go on to, onto um, Instagram and look at just, you know, like following some, some um, funny, you know, comedic influences. And it would just sort of get me into that headspace. And there is like, it, it's almost like for me, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not bilingual. I don't speak a different language, but it's almost like you can switch into kind of comedy yeah. zone Speech. in your head, yeah, yeah, like a, yeah. different, a yeah. different language. Um, and once I'd found that, I could just get into it and it would be firing like bing, bing, bing. And it is so satisfying. It's so satisfying. Yeah. So like, I don't know, at the end of my book, I've got um, recipes and it's like recipes for people who hate cleaning. So recipes for people who don't like cleaning up. And I remember one day I sat there and I just, I had, I'll try find, I had a recipe for, oh, here it is. Like one of my recipes is for banana surprise. And it was like ingredients, one banana. Method, carefully peel the banana. Two, surprise, there's a snack inside. And it was like, you know, washing up, none. And it's like, just these things would sort of come. And it was so much fun and such a release from the news cycle, you know? I really love the editor's notes throughout the book. Oh, Oh, they make me laugh so much. They're very funny. I just was like, yeah, this is great. I love it. They're so droll. It's very funny. So we should probably talk about your book. Like we've got this far into this. Let's, why don't you give us the elevator pitch? Because I I think it kind of perfectly sums up a creative life, really. Like you think it's all got to be perfect, but the mess is actually an integral part of the whole process, isn't it? Yes. So, So when I was in lockdown, I was sent this book. Um, it was a nonfiction book, and I, I, as I said, I really love nonfiction. And this book was about cleaning, and I was fascinated because I like learning about topics I know nothing about, and I knew absolutely nothing about cleaning. And you know, it was all about literally about cleaning your house, and you know, you need 
housework schedules and that, like, apparently you know, housework schedules make life much easier and, and which I have n- never found to be true because housework schedules mean you actually have to clean things and that is not easy at all. Um, and, you know, it taught me all sorts of things like apparently you have to clean light fittings once a week, right? What? And I didn't know you had to clean light fittings at all. <laughs> So that was that was kind of a revelation to me. And it's like discovering anyway, so you've got skirting boards that need to be like cleaned. Skirting boards. I didn't even I didn't even notice I had a like what's a skirting board for? I guess to hold up the wall. I don't know. <laughs> and you know, there are all these recipes for, for do-it-yourself cleaning products, which are all like vinegar and bicarb, by the mm, way. Yeah. It's not that interesting. And so then I started doing this deep dive into the whole cleaning industry. And of course I I'd heard about Marie Kondo and you know, basically throwing out basically all your things. Um, so you can, you, you know, you only leave the things that spark joy, which is weird because you're still meant to keep your cleaning products. It's all, it's all a bit confusing to me. And, and I started reading about, there's this thing called um, the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning, which yes. is you're meant to throw out all your things so that your children don't have to do it for you. And yes. I'm like, um, no way am I cleaning out all my stuff. I love my stuff. I'm not going to clean it out you know, so that my kids can have an easier life. I mean, if my parents want to do it, great. Like, I'm, giving, I'm giving them the garbage bags. Um, but anyway, and so, and then I, there are all these influencers posting photos of their aspirational pantries. Like, what is, what's the deal with these pantries? The like, you have to decant all your stuff into mason jars and label them. And, and, you know, how does that work? Like, do you top up the flower jar with old, like, with new flour and then keep the old on the bottom? Do you tip it? Anyway. So I did this whole deep dive and I thought someone needs to, to write an antidote to this. This is not okay. Like as if life isn't hard enough that we have to then ensure that, you know, our, our skirting boards are dusted once a week and that our pantries have to be organised and that our books have to be colour-coded and, and we're, not, you know, we're not allowed anything in our wardrobe that doesn't spark joy. So I decided to, to basically write an antidote to that. Um, and it's, you know, it's the Bible of domestic imperfection. Um, and I managed to put into it all of my own personal domestic fails because there are a lot of them. For example, the time that I tried to clean my oven, it was a, it was a really heroic effort. You know, it was it had a been big two years, yeah. it was a big moment. And I Googled how to dismantle your oven to clean it. And it was actually really easy. There was this YouTube video. Um, I followed the instructions, took my oven apart, cleaned it up beautifully, put it back together. Unfortunately, I left out like one tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny little part. And when I turned on the oven, it exploded. Um, but it exploded clean. So that was good. That's um, really important. So, so, but the underlying message is that, you know, this is a book for people who don't have perfect houses. Mm. And the underlying message is that you don't need to have a perfect house. You don't need to have a perfect house to be loved, to have people enjoy coming to your house. In fact, people enjoy coming to your house more when your house isn't perfect. Like if you've ever gone to someone's house um, and they are like an immaculate housekeeper and the place is spotless, how do you feel? Like a little bit intimidated? You're scared to drink your red wine in case you spill it on the carpet? Um, You don't want to, you know, you don't want to eat anything in case you you dribble on the table, which I always do. Um, And, you know, we don't need perfect lives. We don't need these, these perfect pantries and this perfectly Instagrammable life. It is okay to be imperfect. Absolutely. Yeah. And and relinquishing all of that gives us much more time to do other things like, you know, become, I don't know, become an aspirational anti-home maintenance influencer like I apparently I was going to say, you've become an influencer now. (laughs) Start my OnlyFans account and, and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
A mere mop. That escalated quickly, but okay. (laughs) Um, So question, how do you know an idea is strong enough to support a book? Like, you know, how do you know, how did you know this was a book and not just, you know, an 800-word article? Oh, that's really, that's a really good question. It was when I found the hook. And I kind of don't want to wreck it, but you alluded to it with the editor's notes. Yeah, yeah. I found a hook. Yeah. Um, I think on its own, an, a, a, like the anti-cleaning book is funny, but I'm not sure if it would sustain a whole book. But yeah. I found a hook which is basically um, involves a whole lot of input from the publishers yeah. in my book. So yeah. the whole book is is um, is punctuated by snarky notes from the editor. <laughs> Um, because I, I should not be writing this book. Um, and that once I found that hook and it, it took a little while, then I realised it had legs because I didn't just, you know, it can't just be a series of gags. There's got to be sort of a wider narrative as well. Yeah, that's, um, and that's the key to it, isn't it? And again, I guess, yeah. again, that brings, um, brings in that idea of the sort of like the universality and accessibility of creating that narrative that brings other people into the story and allows them to, to feel like they're part of it almost, isn't there? It's just yeah. not just you sort of like, here's my funny gag for today. Yes, exactly, I exactly. You could probably do, like, given you're such a diary queen, I feel like, you know, Kerry's, you know, gag of the day might be quite a good thing, 365 <laughs> days of hilarious anecdotes. I love oh, it. Oh, wow, that's, that's, that's an interesting idea. I'll have to think you about that. have to think about that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I think that's us for today. I think we've had, we've captured, you know, we've covered your only fans and we've talked about having taken your <laughs> pants off and we've discussed your children and we've talked about all the various things. I think we're done. I think we've covered everything so. we need to talk about. Um, thank you very much for talking to us today, Kerry. It's, it's been really interesting. I think that the that whole sort of um, idea of the pram in the hall and the creativity and the children and, and you know, mining your own life and then um, where do you start, where do you stop uh, are all really great questions for us to explore. So I, I've, I've really enjoyed personally, like I've had a great time. Hope you've had a great time. And we've universally invited everyone else into it. So surely that's a great time for everyone. Um, where can people find out more about your book and you? <sighs> More about oh, you. Yes. Look, um, I'm everywhere. So I'm on Twitter at Kerry Sackville. It's Kerry with an I. Um, I'm on Instagram at Kerry Sackville. I'm on Facebook at Kerry Sackville Online. I have a website. I'm not sure how Do you still have a website? I don't have a blog. I have a website right. um, where you can get links to all my books. So that would be something like kerrysackville.com. <laughs> something i just, actually am not why don't you just google so kerry sackville website to it somewhere. <laughs> god you're all over it see it? I, yeah the imperfectness look, I, a little I, bit I, of mess in your social yeah, media look, i have no idea what my website is just find me on social media and there's links to everything email me you know you just uh, message me i answer all my messages actually i'm very very scrupulous about that so if you want to get in touch with me message me via instagram or twitter or facebook and i will get back to you and my book will be in all good bookstores from pretty much now excellent um, and the book of course is called the life-changing magic of a little bit of mess and i think we've had a very life-changing discussion here today personally and you'll find out how to make a banana surprise <laughs> And everyone needs that skill with no bicarb or vinegar in the picture. (laughs) Thanks.